This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, From Behind the Other Chair, Volume 1, The Therapist Roars. And the author is Claren Dior, and Claren joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Claren. Hello. Well, this has a, a lot of imagery just in the title. <laughs> yes, it does. And you are the therapist. I am the therapist. You have been, and maybe you could call yourself currently, in the other chair. Yes, I have. So we're going to talk about your role as the therapist and as the patient, right? Okay, but first, why write the book? My goodness, there's there's a, probably a ton of books out there in the <laughs> psychology and the psychiatric uh, realm. So why write the book? I wrote the book primarily for myself. I I did not intend to publish uh, anything that I wrote, but I found as I was going along that I was expressing uh, what I call expressing the inexpressible and uh, surfacing the traumatic emotions that are so hard to to experience and clarify. I found that my, my clients, when I was working with them, had great difficulty with these traumatic emotions. They're the tough ones. And they're the ones that must be survived and assimilated somehow or uh, leads to t- terrible consequences, including suicide. So the tough ones, the ones that take years usually to deal with or to mm-hmm. overcome? Absolutely. Many people never do and end up with what we call permanent emotional damage. But it's my, it's my uh, supposition here. I'm, I'm primarily stating that the trauma state that we hate so much is the primary integral human condition. It, it starts with the birth trauma, it ends with the death trauma, and we got a whole lot of trauma in between. So it, essentially that's the foundation of the human experience and what we learn from. We, do, we don't learn from tripping through the roses. No. We learn from the tough stuff. Even though we're always told we better smell the roses along the way because they may not be there forever. <laughs> <laughs> they may not. They may have real big thorns. Big thorns. Big thorns. But these traumas, so are you saying there's opportunity in these traumas to learn and to move on? Absolutely. Absolutely. And unfortunately, as humans, we try to avoid them uh, because they're painful. We try to minimize. We try to, to skate around them. We do just about everything we can as humans to not deal with them because they hurt. And often emotional pain is even worse than physical pain. Far worse, I think. Far worse. Now, you've been a therapist for how long? 35 years. 35 years as a licensed marriage and family therapist. Mm-hmm. And Well, what happened, what event happened that suddenly you were in the other chair? Uh, there was a fire in my home, uh, accidentally set by me, and it was a horrendous trauma uh, emotionally and physically. I ended up with rather severe uh, lung burning 
and stomach, all, all through the breathing areas. And uh, it took me about six months to recover from that part of it. But what it did is it, in a series of events, it, uh, like the domino effect, it destroyed, the, it destroyed my life. And I woke up one morning, and there I was sitting in the ashes, and everything else was falling down around me. Um, it, was, it was a horrendous experience and certainly a shock. I was not expecting this. It was a brutal accident, is all I can, can say about that. But and what tr- I found then, then I had symptoms, psychiatric symptoms, that I could not identify. And it took my therapists and doctors and myself some time to understand exactly what was happening and how to deal with it. So you withdrew into yourself after that? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I withdrew uh, as far into myself as I could go because I didn't know who I could trust. And here you are, a therapist, and probably know all the academic reasons and solutions, and yet it, it didn't matter. No, because the irony of my situation is that that has been my specialty all along in, uh, as a therapist is in dealing with trauma. So <laughs> I would have expected myself to be a little more, well, how would we say this, uh, uh, gracious at handling the, the severe traumas. When you go through it yourself, though, you get a completely new and unique experience uh, and perspective. So you say you were lost in the abyss of mental torment. Mm-hmm. So you just wouldn't forgive yourself, or you, or the what ifs were overwhelming the reality of it, or all all of that, and also the the worst part for me was dealing with the symptoms, uh, the panic symptoms, the severe anxiety attacks, all of those those things that I talk about in the book. Those are almost automatic, and you can't get rid of them. It's not something you can. Um, wish away. So uh, in, in the end, it com- usually comes down and dips, in my case, to medication. Uh, but, but there is an emotional process of learning how to deal with the stark terror of seeing your life disintegrate around you. Every single bit of it, every smack and bit, my was goodness. gone overnight. And you, uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's trauma. That is trauma. And you call this PTSD. Now, what does that stand for? That stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. And it is recognized in the field as a uh, psychiatric disorder. Much uh, more disturbing than uh, bipolar. Bipolar, it can be part of it. I've had some of those symptoms. But it's so much bigger than that. And more complex. More complex and more difficult to deal with because the symptoms are rather off the wall and come at you uh, in a, a strange, bizarre pattern. Don't, don't make any sense at all. No. Don't make any sense all at all. The, yeah. All unexpected kinds of feelings that come mm-hmm. at you. Mm-hmm. I've come to realize and identify what I call the trauma loop. And that is, I'll be talking about that more in Volume 3, that is uh, what I see as the pattern on how it works. It's almost like an omega loop. And I've just about got it down as far as uh, seeing how those emotions flow back and forth uh, and keep you locked in there. So you started writing poetry. Why did you start doing that? Uh, (laughs) That's a good question. I've always written poetry since I was a little girl. I have 
some poems I wrote when I was five years old to my, my dad. Uh, that's how I express myself, and I think uh, many artists are doing exactly that. They're, regardless of their medium, they're expressing their deepest emotions through their work. Uh, this is how we share ourselves with the world, and um, uh, I can't draw and I can't sing, <laughs> but I can write poetry. And these are very pointed, uh, filled with emotion, as poetry always is, and you call them metasymbolic poetry. Now, why did you call it metasymbolic? Well, what that means, what meta means, is something within something else. And I call it metasymbolic encoded verse because it's the meaning within the meaning of the core emotion of each poem. So each poem has a core and sometimes traumatic emotion that, that, it, that is at its center. So we're and, dealing uh, with the subconscious. Yes. I'm, <laughs> that's my expertise, dealing with the subconscious. <laughs> right, right. Uh-huh. And I'm trying to, as I'm, as I'm uh, writing and, and dealing with my own subconscious, uh, I'm, I'm putting that in there symbolically to be recognized uh, by the psyche of the reader. Well, let's take one of these poems and one of your favorites, and let's start there and read it, and let's talk about why you wrote it and what you were, you know, the meaning of it is, is in the, and, and how it helped you, how it helped you better understand, I guess, your situation, your condition at the time. Okay. I'd like to start with my favorite poem in expressing the experience of mental illness and the sense of being out of control. Um, the title to this poem is Corpses Weeping Skin. Corpses Weeping Skin. That's, mm-hmm. That is very graphic. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. I have braved the sinister corridor you have never fared and hustled lame the minefield's roar. I have been layered with careless demons of an alien shore. Never have I faulted scared. Make no mistake, the dark king soiled my mind. Fiend of the nadir, his misery none forsake. Tomorrow's ghost there didst me find, and with a truncate tongue I spake. They the travesty rejoined in kind. I have wrestled the menacing beast to the farthest corners of indigenous despair. His poisoned fang sharp stung my breast as the dying sun spit its sunken flare. I turned my back to fate's sumptuous feast, from fractured minds to shy lends no repair. These be pits to which few e'er descend, a state of hell that wicked holds the soul, and doth the sheen of shame befriend. Once entered upon its ghastly roll, forever pockmarked by the nuclear wind. Herein lies the unslaked creature's toll. I have danced with corpses weeping skin, those bony hands clasped round my waist, and fallen heartsick by their profane grin. The sulfur breast, its acrid taste, hath rhombic pinned my core within. Crude pinchers bit my frenzied haste. Entombed in a prison made of flesh, the slain cold blood mires viscous, through veins hand-pierced to drainage mesh. Once flake vesseled, vessels deemed they precious, sacred mendicants in the wide worldly crash, thence the suicide of insanity wails victorious. 
I have run impious with the spectral tract and how censure upon hallowed ground. To the soulless wanderers t'was no way back. Nay, Circe's in pathos may it here be found. Their brittle bones upon the slack heap crack. Carcasses whose bay wits meander the surround. The struck match lit the fascist fire. Flame's fingers stroked the penitent mania. The detritus fell away upon the pyre, cooled in the ashes of melancholia. They named me assassin. They called me liar, a bottom-dweller unhinged by dementia. I have braved the sinister corridor you have never fared and traced with the outcast putrid sore till my very spirit all despaired. I have survived the interlude of nevermore, and you alone, just you, have cared. Wow. <laughs> All I could think of at first, especially, was Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would consider that a high compliment. <laughs> He's one of my favorites. Well, you uh, obviously you express yourself so vividly and pointedly and emotionally. Uh, boy, you were you were in uh, in the deep darkness, weren't you? That was the bottom. My goodness, demons and aliens and dark and misery and ghosts and beasts and fang and hell, and the list goes on. And that essentially is how it feels when you are in that state of of total despair, where there is nothing left. Mm. My goodness. Now, Now, in doing that, that was therapeutic to express yourself that way? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Those are the ones that I... I really want to reach those, those, um, the epitome, whether it's on the other, other end of the scale, because I do write some, some beautiful, lighthearted ones, but the ones that are the hardest to write are those that deal with those ugly, nasty feelings and emotions that you don't want, that, that you, don't, you don't understand why you have anyway. How did I end up like this? That was one of the things I, of course, asked myself. Right. I'm the last kind of person, as many judges have told me, <laughs> that would end up in a mental health court. So you're just trying to make sense of all this, as you say, nonsensical occurrences that just completely caught you off guard. Yes, and that's, that's how I, uh, when I started writing poetry, it was intended to be therapeutic, a, a poetic journal. Uh, but as I really got into it, what I found I was doing was... Uh, essentially regurgitating these awful uh, emotions and getting rid of them. So how does this help someone who has this deep, dark struggle? How does that help them reading these words? I think in the sense that they will recognize subconsciously uh, the, the agony and the pain that they have not dealt with. What I find with my readers is those who identify with a particular poem uh, have those issues themselves that are unresolved, and that's what it's intended to do. If, if someone tells me what their favorite poem is, I know where they are oh, yes. <laughs> psychologically. Right. Now, now, do you have poems of hope as well? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. I do. They're not my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> because it? the others are so much harder to write. Right. You know, I, I tend to look at my best poems as being the ones that were the hardest to, for me to write. Uh, the ones that of hope, and I do write um, 
in, in Volume 1, there are a number of love poems. And they are quite different in, in experience of writing. Well, it's intense. It's such a variety, uh, as you say, of style, form, and content. And it is also autobiographical. Yes, it is. As well. So what, a, what an accomplishment, uh, Claire. And I'm sure you'll help a lot of people who struggle and who maybe can't express it themselves, but can feel the expression of your heart and mind. That's my hope. Well, tell us how to get your book. Through iUniverse.com. And it will be offered on Amazon. Hopefully it will be in bookstores soon. Do you have a website? I do, but I'm just now getting started with it, so I I can't really give you a whole lot of information. Well, somebody can Google you, I'm sure. Claren Dior. Mm Mm-hmm. And also the book, From Behind the Other Chair, Volume 1, The Therapist Roars. Well, we want to thank you, Claren, for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. That was Claren Dior. She is the author of her book, From Behind the Other Chair, Volume 1, The Therapist Roars. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Field of Being, Collected Thoughts on the Unfolding Evolution of Human Consciousness. And the author is Don Nix. And Don joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Don. Hello. How are you? We're going to take 
everyone on a journey into the cosmos, but at the same time, you're going to make it a, you're going to combine that with, as you say, uh, spiritual reality and kind of bring those together to help us better understand living life, right? Uh, what happened here was that I began to study some quantum physics some time ago, a couple or three years ago, and at the same time, I was in my 20th year of uh, being part of a Sufi work group, intensely studying uh, reality. And I realized at some point that those two things were coming together. They were actually converging. The, what I was reading in quantum physics about subatomic particles and the unified field was tracking exactly what I had been studying for 20 years in Sufism. And I got really excited at that point because I, I thought these things are coming together in, 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 uh, at this moment in my lifetime. And what an amazing thing because for 400 years, science and spirituality have been separated. They've been antagonists. And to see them converging uh, and agreeing on something profound and, and <clears throat> sort of deep like that was really exciting. So... I started to get up every morning at 3 in the morning and write until my wife got up at 7 and wrote this little book in about three weeks. Um, and I knew it was finished because the energy that had hit my system when I had that realization stopped. And uh, so I, I kind of you know, brought it together and closed it out. And the point of the book is really to... Um, express that convergence of quantum physics and the ancient wisdom traditions. That's the entire point of the book. And uh, I've tried to do it in a way that's very accessible and understandable. One of the, re one of the ways that I tried to do that was to start each uh, chapter with a poem. And <clears throat> I did that because in some way poetry appeals to a different part of the mind. And with poetry, you, you realize that you're approaching a poem, and you don't come into it with an antagonistic posture. You're actually open to, to different takes on reality. And so I thought, if I, could, if I could start the chapter with poetry that was real and um, expressed something other than just street consciousness, then maybe I could go on into the prose of it, and, and the reader would be open to uh, ideas that may not be familiar. So I put a poem in front of each little chapter, and I actually didn't think of these things as chapters. I thought of them as modules, because in my attempt to make it accessible, I wanted each chapter to be sh extremely short. They're two or three pages. And I wanted the language to be simple, and I wanted the book to be short, so that the whole thing did not formidable. Well, as soon as you say quantum physics, everyone's going to go, ah! <laughs> right. You know, yeah. what? Quantum physics. But you have, uh, your goal here, like you say, is the ordinary person with no knowledge of ancient spiritual wisdom or quantum phys physics should be able to follow along. I think so. I hope so. I've done everything I can, can do to make <laughs> it that way. Well, that's fascinating, and it Obviously, uh, for those of us who probably don't think about quantum physics or ancient spiritual wisdom every day, this kind of takes us on a journey into our, like you say, our human consciousness. 
well, hopefully I've woven these two things together. So they're both, they're both in the writing and, uh, you know, they, they can be separated out, but they're, they're woven together in this work. Well, let's take a couple of those and have you recite the, the poem and then explain, you know, what, why, what you were thinking and why you chose that topic. The first one is our lineage. Right. This, uh, this starts with a, a little poem, which is about, I mean, when I say our lineage, I'm really talking about where we came from. And so here's the poem. It's about ten, ten lines. We are stardust, blown through infinities of living night to this lovely green little planet to dance the dream of life and to undertake the task of stardust everywhere, to shine, to shine, to shine. And the um, text which follows that talks about the fact that we are quite literally stardust. We're made of carbon, and the only way that carbon enters the universe is a starburst. It's when a star explodes and sends carbon out into space. So the, the material, the molecules that our body is made of, has come from uh, a cataclysmic uh, star explosion somewhere in space. Uh, so we're, we're each a kind of a pool of consciousness that's picked up a little cosmic dust to form a, a body around it. That's, that's an example, you know, of how the, the poem, it, uh, the poem uh, wraps itself around the text. If you, I find when I, when I pick up a scientific uh, book, I find that my mind goes kind of numb. There's something about scientific language that puts me to sleep. And I, I suspect it puts most people to sleep. Not only the poem at the beginning of each uh, module, but also the prose itself. I've tried to use a lot of metaphors, a lot of uh, uh, similes, a lot of visual uh, uh, experience, and weave that into the writing so that you're having images as well as, as reading the, uh, the text. So you're trying to help us understand the reality of the universe, as you put it. Right, right. The, what the scientists are trying to do in our time and what the ancient Hindu uh, Brahmins did 3,500 years ago is exactly the same thing. They're looking at the universe and they're saying, what is this? What is this reality that we're living in? Uh, and they, each one of those groups did the best they could to express what they saw and what they thought reality was. Why has, why has this uh, view been so polarized for so long? It's because um, 400 years ago, uh, Rene Descartes put out the idea of the universe as a mechanical um, mechanism kind of operation. And, and then Newton came along and, <clears throat> and put um, his imprimatur on our reality by by talking about the laws of motion and how his idea was that space is a kind of an empty container and objects move around in that space and contact each other and they transfer energy to each other. That's kind of what we call cause and effect. And so the combination of those two things, looking at the universe like a clock, like a mechanism, and the fact that the, the universe is, by in Newton's view, is empty, and 
objects are separate and colliding with each other, that left us with the vision of a dead universe, a dead, empty universe. And over the last 400 years, that vision of a dead, empty universe has become the, the cultural complex. That, that's our worldview. And it's really not a cosmos fit to live in. And that's what's breaking down right now. The, uh, one of the greatest discoveries in quantum physics is that space is not empty. It's full. In every cubic foot of space, they have what's called quantum foam. And these are particles that are emerging in that space for nanoseconds, for just tiny little bits of time. And those particles are emerging from their waveform, which means from nothingness. And a waveform doesn't occupy anything in space. It's not material. A particle is material. So these particles are emerging into material reality and then disappearing back is, into space. Is the waveform a, uh, would you call it light? Uh, you can think of it that way. Um, it's not light. That, that would be a photon. But uh, the particle itself has two different modes. It has a waveform mode and a particle mode. One has no material form, and the, other, the particle actually has material form. So it's, it's actually the boundary line between the spiritual and the material. It's like non-materiality becomes materiality. Well, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the threshold that we've always been talking about between the material world and spirituality, between consciousness and the material world. All those things that we've split into dualities are coming together. And you're not bringing religion into this. You're focused more on spiritual wisdom. Exactly, exactly. I think, I think religion is a kind of a codification and a kind of a concretization of uh, this kind of thought. And I, I, don't, I don't think religions are very relevant today because, for the most part, they're, they're telling you that you should actually believe and follow the things that were experienced by people 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, 3,500 years ago. And that's just not relevant. You know, there are brilliant insights into reality that are happening today. They happen to be happening in quantum physics. But as, as that quantum physics is expressed, the, the old worldview is disintegrating. It's, a, it's evaporating right in front of our eyes. And we're being plunged into a world and a new reality where cause and effect don't, aren't, aren't very important. <laughs> they don't operate to, uh, to cover everything that's happening. And space is not empty. And forms are as much light as they are material. Well, let's go to Living Light, one of the titles of one of your modules called Living Light. Why don't you share with us the poem and then talk about it? Okay, this poem is, is much more spiritual uh, than scientific. I am here. I am here, shining and incandescent. I am here in a million, million pattern of light, of symmetry, and of beauty. I am the patterns of light that shine forth from under the covering of the material world. I am the radiant patterns of light in nature, in mathematics, in language, in art, in architecture, and in all created form. I am the eternal, self-luminous earth of light, shining forth in countless, intricate, beautiful patterns all around you. 
I am the web of light and life that holds all living things together. I am always here, beneath the material world and sustaining the material world. You can always reach me and touch me and see me. I am the living patterns that shine. The whole of earth and all of its forms are shining with one brilliant radiance. That poem is almost pure Sufism. Well, when you were when you were reading your poem, the first thought came to me was that when you see someone that really uh, gets your attention, often because they may not even be talking, but there's a glow about them. Right, right. And actually, humans emit light. This is one of the things that's been discovered recently. We've known for a long time that you can um, capture human humans emitting auras. That can, be, that can be captured on photographic film. But there's new research that, where they've been able to measure the light emitted by a human being. Wow. Which is quite an, quite an amazing thing. Really? And, there, and there's great power there. Yeah, tremendous power. And it shakes us out of our street consciousness, which is a kind of a, um, it's a state of being asleep, about, about three-fourths asleep. Well, most people don't see themselves of having that kind of inner power, that kind of uh, unlimited, really unlimited uh, knowledge and learning, and uh, and of great influence on other people. Right. Well, we have we have access to all that. I mean, right. Part of the problem is our is our cultural complex. We've been we're socialized as children into this cultural complex, and it is a system of reality. It's it's kind of what bonds the, the polity together, the shared, the shared beliefs and the shared perception are, are what bind people together. But in fact, the cultural complex has got it wrong. <laughs> what can happen when you encounter new ideas, they can kind of blow your cultural complex uh, apart so that you're seeing things in a fresh way. And actually, the, the world sort of lights up because it is so fresh. And you're not you're not seeing it through kind of a a membrane of the past and what you've already you've known always and it's it's a new world. Well, most often conversations really unfortunately focus on very trite things. Well, right, and the and the cultural complex is surrounding you, and it's very very powerful because everybody around you is trapped in it. They all be, they're all believing the same thing. Right. And if they're believing that the universe is dead and empty, then you really have to fight hard to get past that belief because uh, you're being washed with that belief by, by, your, by your culture. Right. All the media and all, the, all the, the conversations that don't open up, I guess, the, uh, what, what's the word, the potential in, in everyone. Or the depth dimension. There you go. That's very well put. Yeah, reality actually is kind of a layered thing. And this cultural complex has gotten fixated on the material level. But beneath that material level are many, many levels of reality. They're just as real as material. They're just not visible. Well, and that's what you're focused on doing for us is to help us to break out of that of, I guess, that cultural trap and see things in a much different light. Right, right. It, it can be done. It requires a little bit of hard work, 
uh, a lot of people have a temporary insight which kind of lights up the world, and they see the world in a, in a fresh way and even a spiritual way, but somehow they're unable to sustain that and take it forward and actually live with it, make it part of their life. Well, Don, tell us how to get your book. Uh, it's on iUniverse. Um, the, uh, it's on Amazon.com. Hope, hope it'll be um, in the bookstore sometime soon. Do you have a website? I don't at the moment. My website came down, and I haven't put it back up yet, but I will have soon, and it'll be under Don C. Nix. Don C. Nix, and Nix is spelled N-I-X. DonCNix.com. Look for that soon. Well, very good, Don. We appreciate you sharing your new book, The Field of Being, Collected Thoughts on the Unfolding Evolution of Human Consciousness. Thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Thanks for your interest. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on toginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives?, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Germania, and the author is Robert Chipley, and Robert joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Robert. Hello, how are you today? Germania was the dream of Hitler. He wanted to create the new capital of Germany, correct? Yes, that's right. So why get involved in writing a book about a dream? Well, I think it's it's sort of more than that, Uh, Germania is a little bit of a backdrop to the the story. The real story is about the uh, the hero Hans Klug and his search uh, for some of the buried treasure that was stolen by the Nazis from concentration camp victims. And the connection with Germania is that the original plan of the Nazis was to use all of this stuff that they stole from people to finance the rebuilding or the building of their capital, uh, which was this sort of neoclassic monstrosity that they uh, planned to build on the ruins of Berlin. 
So Berlin had been bombed into ruin by the English and the Americans, and Hitler had this this dream of creating the new Germany, I guess. Well, that that's true. I mean, he had that dream for a long time beforehand. I don't think, uh, I mean, it was just that, that one of their ways of rationalizing the fact that the city was falling down all around them was that they wouldn't have to... Uh, uh, be the ones to tear down the city uh, of their enemies were doing it for them. And then after they won the war, which of course was a pretty distant possibility, they were going to try to turn this into this new capital. One of the, I guess, treasures of your book is how much it is based on history. Uh, yes, it, it really is. I, I've read a lot about uh, Germany during the war, and uh, I think that the real challenge for me in putting together this book was to kind of mix historical fact and then events that occurred only in my imagination and come up with something uh, believable. And I and I think I, by and large, did that. Did you mention that there's even a group in Berlin uh, which has discovered these bunkers that were underneath the city? I mean, just recently they were discovered. Well, some of them, there's, there's, there's so many of them but I'm sure they're ones that have not yet been discovered. But uh, this group uh, gives tours of some of these underground bunkers, and uh, I haven't been on one yet because I haven't been back in Berlin since this, since this group came into existence. But there's a whole network of places under the city, and the, and the Nazis, of course, built elaborate bunkers to protect themselves from the bombing. Now let's start talking about some characters here. Uh, what is who is the main character? Hans. Yeah, Hans Kluck is the main character, and he is a former East German border guard. Uh, and he's approached one day on the street by a woman, uh, and this, of course, is several years after the war. The wall came down. Uh, Who wants to blackmail him because she's got a, a report that he wrote where his patrol killed somebody trying to cross the border. They just plain shot him down. And uh, it wasn't really Hans who, who did this, but he was certainly implicated in it. And she wants him to bring, uh, you know, like 100,000 euros to the flea market and give it to her there. Uh, and then she'll give him the report and he can get rid of it. Uh, so he really doesn't have that kind of money. I mean, he's Speaks out a living hand to mouth as a as an interpreter for visiting American businessmen. So he goes back to his old colleagues in state security in the in the Stasi, which was uh, you know a, a pretty rotten bunch of people. And he asks them for help uh, to give him the money and to help him get this woman off his back. And so that's the first part of it. And then it turns out. Uh, he does get the money and give it to her, but she, meanwhile, gets murdered by some guy who's wearing a, a World War II Nazi uniform and hangs her supposedly as a traitor, uh, and then he runs off with all the money. So the challenge for Hans is to get the money back, and uh, the connection is that um, the person that knows about where the money is and knows where the hidden treasure stolen from the concentration camp victims, is in the U.S. It's an old SS man who escaped to the U.S. after the war. And as it turns out, the, the, the guy in the German uniform is his uh, nephew. 
so it's all wrapped up with uh, the remnants of Nazism that escaped to this country. And that's how, where Milwaukee comes in. That's my hometown. So I naturally set this guy in Milwaukee and, and set Hans on his way to discovering it. Now, Hans was a Nazi. No, no, Hans is a communist. Oh, he's a communist. Okay. Yeah, he was he was an East German border guard, and he still believes in communism. And that was kind of a challenge to take somebody who has opinions that are really not very uh, uh, savory to Americans and turn him into a believable and admirable person. And he really is, because he's extremely courageous, and he uh, the people that he lo- loves most in the world are all Jewish, uh, a Jewish couple from New York that taught him how to speak English, who were living in East Germany, and then um, a uh, Jewish refugee from anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union, who was his neighbor. So uh, his attraction to these people really kind of cleanses him somewhat of the bad feelings that you might have towards him because of his uh, attitude towards America. So these three Jewish people, they play a, a main part in the story? Yes, very much so. The, the couple are mostly remembered. They're, they're in the, back, the background, and they're referred to frequently, but they're actually uh, both dead by the time the story begins. But the uh, young Jewish woman whom he falls in love with is very much an active participant in the story. And, in fact, she's the one that, uh, at the end, she uh, um, saves his, his life. I mean, he owes her everything. Tell us about those who are fighting against Hans. Well, um, the first one, of course, is this guy who was uh, wearing a Nazi uniform and hanged the woman who was blackmailing him and stole the money, the blackmail money. But uh, but uh, the main uh, evil person is a guy who's a professor at a Bible college in Virginia, and he's nothing but a, a neo-Nazi and he's trying to um, revive uh, the Hitler Youth. He, he thinks that the Hitler Youth was, was the greatest youth organization that ever existed, and so he's trying to rope young people into it, and he has sort of a, a coterie of uh, disciples. And he, he also is looking for this old SS man, and the reason they're looking for him is that he has the key to the vault under the streets of Berlin where all this treasure looted from the concentration camps victim is buried. And so he knows where it is, and he also has the keys. So that's what everybody is looking for. And by the end of the book, they actually Hans actually finds it, and he goes into this vault and very nearly doesn't come out again. Who are some of the key characters that help Hans? Well, I think that the, the main character that helps Hans is uh, this young Jewish woman. But he's got a couple of people that are helping him to uh, find this key in the United States. And one of them is an old uh, uh, high East German official who lives in a bunker himself and has not been above ground in something like 12 years. And uh, then there's uh, his uh, his kind of... Uh, uh, disciple who brings him food and one thing and another and, and, and keeps him alive, who's a taxi driver in Berlin. His name is Breitbach. 
and he, in a way, is kind of an admirable character. He he uh, helps Hunt uh, get the thing going, and at the end, he plays a constructive and interesting role also. So th- there are a couple of characters, German characters, who, whereas they may not be entirely admirable, they're at least not entirely evil the way the uh, this professor at the Bible college is, and uh, and then the uh, uh, the guy dressed up in a Nazi uniform who actually hangs several people. He he uh, hangs an old lady in West Virginia who holds the the uh, secret to um, the location of the guy who uh, who is the one who was uh, assigned to guard the this treasure. And uh, so, you know, there, there's a certain amount of consistency in the characters. He's he's uh, killed several people, and Hans is really after him. So this is a race uh, from these, you know, the antagonists and the pr- protagonists to get the the buried treasure. It's a it's a race between them to see who can figure out quickest how to get it. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a race between Hans and this professor at the Bible College. The neo-Nazi. Yeah, the neo-Nazi, and it ends up in Milwaukee, and uh, and uh, things are kind of tied together because the the uh, daughter of the old SS man kind of guards his sickbed and won't let anybody near them unless they pass certain tests. And she gives a test to Hans, it takes all his measurements to find out if he is a, an Aryan uh, and racially worthy, and he passes this test. Whereas the actually, ironically enough, the uh, uh, Bible professor does not. And then she, her assignment to uh, him is to bring her the head of her cousin who betrayed her. And that the cousin turns out to be the guy who was uh, wearing the Nazi uniform and, and hanged the uh, woman at the very beginning of the story. So Hans has to go and fight with this guy in a junkyard. And actually, that's a a high-tension theme, uh, and uh, once he manages to fulfill his mission, then this woman lets him in to see her father, and uh, the whole thing moves forward. Lots of twists and turns. Well, there really are a lot of twists and turns, um, but I think that I managed to keep up the interest in the story uh, quite consistently. Um, and, you know, if people want to take a look at, at the, a couple of excerpts out of it, I do have a website now uh, that's just www.robertchipley, as one word, .com. And if people go to that, they can read uh, three excerpts from the book. And Chipley is C-H-I-P-L-E-Y, robertchipley.com. Right, exactly. I think people would get a flavor for the book and... Uh, and it might induce them to want to read more. I would hope so. Uh, but at any rate, this was a, a big project in my life. I spent a lot of time on it, and uh, I think it actually turned out quite well. Who would the book appeal to, Robert? Well, I think the book would appeal uh, would appeal to people that like espionage and spy novels to a certain uh, extent, and also people who are maybe looking for something different. Because it really isn't like any other uh, book about the topic of the fall of the wall or any of the rest of it, because it 
It tries to see things from the other side. It makes a hero out of uh, a communist. And uh, so there's some, there's some ironies in it and some tension uh, that that brings about. But I think because of the fact that the, the guy who's the communist is also quite admirable and has many good traits, he really is quite fascinating. And I think uh, <clears throat> people would respond to him positively. One of the uh, purposes of the book uh, is to kind of point out what a fascinating place Berlin is. Uh, you know, to me, it's the most um, interesting city in Europe. And the uh, New York Times, in a recent article, called it the cultural capital of the world. And it's just filled with all kinds of little uh, plaques and memorials to all the bad things that happened there. For example, in Berlin, they put little brass plaques in the sidewalk in front of houses that uh, Jewish families lived in who were then deported to Auschwitz. And, you know, you, you see dozens of these. They, they almost, you know, almost notice them to begin with. And then there are various other uh, plaques and memorials around the city. And then the most interesting to me uh, is that pillar where the, the book ends. It, it was uh, put up by the Nazis uh, in 1941 to test the ground to see if it would bear the weight of the Great Arch. They planned to build, as part of Germania or Germania, a huge arch with the names of all the German soldiers who had died in World War I and World War II. And it was, the, you know, like the center memorial for, for Berlin, Berlin. But all that's left of it is this kind of dilapidated pillar, which really exists. I mean, I found this by reading various books, and I went and saw it and took a walk around it. And it immediately occurred to me how I could use it in the book as the very end, the, the culminating moment uh, when Hans finds what he's looking for. Kind of the epitome of the whole Nazi dream, right? Well, exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, and it was, you know, it's an ironic that it, it, that it exists. The, the book said that it's just too big and heavy to cart away, so they just have left it there. Uh, and it's the, sort of like the, the last vestige of a city that almost came into existence. In an overgrown patch of weeds, as you say. Yes, that's right, it is. It's, it's in this kind of forgotten corner of the city next to a garden colony, which is a peculiar German institution where people rent little plots of land. And it's just, you know, and there are all this trash in there. It's just uh, completely abandoned. Well, Robert, tell us how to get your book. Well, I th you can, uh, for one thing, you can go to my website, www.robertshipley.com, and order it that way. And there's just a link there that what you're doing really is ordering it through Amazon. Or you can go directly to Amazon and uh, ask for uh, Robert Shipley, I guess, and uh, up will pop the opportunity to, uh, to buy it. So I think it's also available through Barnes & Noble. But right now, the best way to get it is to uh, go to an Internet site. Well, it sounds like you've got to get this book to Hollywood somehow. What a what a plot. What an incredible uh, story. Well, uh, thanks. I'm glad you feel that way, and uh, certainly I wouldn't uh, <laughs> that. <laughs> well, Robert, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio and sharing your story with us. Uh, okay, great. It's my honor. Thank you very much.
That was Robert Chipley. He is the author of his book, Germania. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.